Good morning. We doing okay? Everybody alive and well, treasured and prized, beloved uh, body of Christ. It's good to be with you. Um, welcome. We are in uh, week 11 of our uh, study in the book of Philippians. We've just got a few more weeks. Um, we will wrap up this series on July 4th and we'll begin, begin our next series. But if you've been journeying with us, we've been studying the theme of joy in the book of Philippians that Paul wrote this letter, wrote this epistle to this beloved church at Philippi, this major city in northern Greece in, in an area called Macedonia. It was a very it city. It was a very powerful city economically and politically. Paul's in prison in Rome across the Mediterranean and he pens this letter to the church that he loved very much that was young and needed a whole lot of guidance and needed some encouragement and needed some uh, direction on how to experience deeper and deeper joy in the person of Jesus. The problem with that is, and we've said this every week, I hope you're sick of me saying this if you've been around, um, the problem with Paul's path to joy, the issue that one might take with Paul's path to joy is that he doesn't lead us to joy the way that we want to get to joy. We want to get to joy by climbing ladders, by accomplishing more, by defeating more, by conquering more, by rising to the top and succeeding, and we think when we achieve and arrive, we will experience more joy. But for Paul, he seems to every week be leading the reader, be leading the listener down to the bottom of the barrel, down to the bottom rung of the ladder that actually says the way that the Christian experiences joy is through death of self. The way that the Christian experiences joy is by losing at their battles and they fall on Christ. The way that the Christian experiences joy is by losing their death grip on the things that they've demanded to have in order to get more joy. And when they open up their hands from their idols, they will experience more of the joy of Jesus, which is theirs. So that's the theme of joy. That's how it works for Paul and Philippians. So he's constantly leading the reader and listener to what we might have to lose in order to win more joy. Losing or winning by losing the study of joy in Philippians. What, what must we lose in order to experience more joy? This week, talking about the joy in losing your fight. And every couple in the room just elbowed the other person. And that's who I'm talking to today, okay? Um, but we, we can get into lots of fights, lots of discord, lots of disunity, lots of tension, lots of arguments, whether that's with our parents, or our siblings, or our significant others, or our friends, or our roommates, or our coworkers. There, there is something that happens between two people, and that's what Paul's going to address today, and he's, he's going to lead us to say, what would it look like to lose the fight in order to gain more of the joy of Jesus and more of the unity of being the body of Christ? So, brief overview, brief introduction. Turn with me now to three short verses as we begin the final chapter of Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia, and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers whose names are written in the book of life. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come before your word, even these three short verses that were for a very particular issue in Philippi, the truth that Paul is leading them to uh, is very pertinent for us. Um, we are prone to discord, we are prone to disunity, we are prone to quarrels, we are prone to bickering and arguing and fighting. Um, 
And so would you lead us now, soften us, lead us to freedom, lead us to joy uh, as we lose our death grip on what we think we need. Pray now for the one uh, who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are so many. I need this message, Jesus, for my own sake. Pray uh, you don't hold my hypocrisy against your people that are receiving this word this morning. Pray for that, Jesus, in your name. Amen. It's a very uh, short section of the book, three verses. Um, It is nonetheless very important for them and for us. Essentially, Paul has written for three chapters. Now, he didn't, uh, he didn't number those chapters. Those chapter numbers came in way later, but uh, there, there's a shift now. That's why the, the English translators in, inserted a new chapter break, because he has shifted in his direction. He has shifted in his, in his focal point. He's now addressing uh, very specific people. He's, he's written for three chapters about some very generic but very large truths. He's written about the joy of Jesus. He's written about our citizenship in heaven. He's written about uh, losing our own righteousness for the sake of gaining Christ's righteousness. He's written about humility and emulating the humility of Jesus. He's written about all these things. And now he turns and he addresses for the first time a very specific problem in the church. Everything else has been generic. Everything else has been broad sweeping about things that the Philippians need to understand and do and do differently. But now he turns to a specific people, two specific people in the church, and he addresses them. And it's kind of fun to think about, I mean, not the fighting, but it's kind of fun to think about, like, this adds to the historicity of the, like, you kind of go, oh, wait, he was talking to real people. This, this wasn't some, you know, written in some ivory tower by Paul that was just generic enough to be received by anybody. This was written to a church with real people, with real names who had real issues. And Paul is writing as their leader, as their church planner, as their elder from prison saying, hey, here's some things you need to talk about. Euodia and Syntyche, two prominent women in the church, they're fighting about something. Paul's addressing that issue. Now, we have no idea what they're fighting about. This is the only time in Scripture they're mentioned. But whatever they're fighting about, they were unable to resolve it. Because Paul has been in prison across the, the Mediterranean, and he hears about this fight. We'll get to that in a minute. But Paul has done three chapters of writing about theology, about Christology, about eschatology, about suffering, about joy, about humility, about love. And now, as he's closing the letter, he turns to them and directs. He speaks into the church. He speaks to these women directly. So much so, this this three-chapter buildup of all that we've studied for the last 11 weeks, all that we've looked at in the, the grand narrative of Philippians, of the study of joy, he now addresses two specific women, and some scholars think, some commentators think, he wrote the entire letter for this issue. That he's got three ch- a three-chapter intro. You know how like when you get in, you, when someone says we need to have a hard conversation, and then they're like, they like intro it with all the, you know, I know it's, I know I got, you know, there's this going on, and I know you're tired, and I know that there's all this stuff, but now we need to, we need to talk about some real stuff. Like Paul's done a three-chapter uh, preview to go, and now the real issue. And now what I penned the entire letter for was to speak into this. Everything I've written for the first three chapters. Now, we can pull way more out of it than just what's going on in this issue. But I say that to say, is it possible that resolving uh, this discord, this disunity, this fight, was the thrust of the whole letter? Did he write the book for this reason? Is it possible that this issue, this real human issue, is potentially the most important that we need to listen to? In the study of the whole letter, 
this one may be what we need to lean into the most. He's on a three-chapter build-up to address this particular issue. He's going to pull from all that we've studied and let them know how to apply that to their discord and their fighting. It lets us know how important this issue was to Paul and therefore how important he thought this issue was to the church at Philippi. But whatever the prominence, whether or not the whole letter was about this or not, we have to understand the severity of their fighting. It was not just some passing issue that could be tucked under the rug. This issue, whatever it was, had the potential of splitting the church into two groups. The unity of the church is on the blocks. The unity of the church is at stake here. And the unity of the church, just so you know, for the watching world displays the beauty of Jesus. How the church treats each other, Jesus tells us, will let the world know how beautiful and and majestic uh, the gospel of Jesus is. The unity of God's people is how the Bible says the watching world will know whether or not they want to believe in Jesus or not. This is huge for Paul. And now, whatever this issue was has started to trickle out. It started to to make waves and have ripple effects. And you go, well, how does Paul know what's going on with specificity? He's in Rome. People weren't tweeting at him. How did he know what was going on in Philippi across the Mediterranean? Well, if you remember a few chapters ago, we studied Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is who brings this letter back to Philippi from Paul. But you have to remember, Epaphroditus was sent by the church at Philippi with money and with gifts and with his very self to go love on and encourage Paul while he was in prison. That's how much they loved each other. So Epaphroditus comes across the Mediterranean to visit Paul in prison to let him know he's not alone and he's collected an offering for him. And Paul, we love you. Philippi loves you. And Paul goes, man, it's so good to see you, Epaphroditus. Tell me what's going on in the church. Tell me what's going on with my people at Philippi. And Epaphroditus says, there's this fight that's going on. And it's with two women that you love. These two women who Paul just said in the first verse have contended with me in the gospel. They fought side by side with Paul for the sake of the gospel in Philippi. Paul loves these people. And Epaphroditus says to Paul, it's starting to divide the church. Members of the community, Paul, are being forced to pick sides Hey, do you hear about what's going on with 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 Syntyche and and Euodia? Yeah, I think I agree more with her, and so maybe what I don't really like that. You know, she wears a mask and he doesn't, and so you know, I don't know. You know, it's like there there's all the whatever it is. I don't know. They didn't have you know COVID back then. I don't think. I don't know. I'd have to ask a doctor. But they had some issue going on that was driving this. And 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 Epaphroditus comes to Paul and says, "It's bad, Paul." These women who everybody loves, they don't agree on this issue, whatever it is. And again, we don't need to speculate on what it was. They don't agree on it, and it's dividing the church. Here's the problem. First century church in Philippi. New religion taking the world by storm, facing much opposition from Jews and Gentiles in the Roman Empire. The church at Philippi is the only church in Philippi. Right, so it wasn't like one of them could just go, well, you know, I'll just go to First Baptist Philippi and I'll go to First Methodist Philippi. Like, we'll just, we'll just agree to disagree and then we'll go our separate ways and it won't really have an effect on anything. No, division in the church at Philippi is division in the church at Philippi. So they're splitting this church and the unity that people are watching going, what's that, what's that messianic Jewish crowd doing over there that's got Jews and Gentiles and they seem to come from all different races and classes and economic places and they seem to love each other? Like there's this unity going on, and then the outside world goes, but man, those two women, they, they, don't seem to, they seem to hate each other. They seem to have all this bitterness towards each other. They can't seem to get along. I don't know if I believe in that Jesus stuff over there. 
There's division in the church, and Paul knows this disagreement has to be resolved. He's teaching the church at Philippi by addressing this issue, what it means to be the church. That Paul's saying to them, hey, if something's going on with you two in the church, you two women, something's going on with us. It's not just you two individuals that need to go out and figure it out and go have coffee and figure out how to get on the same page. It needs to be addressed in public because you guys not doing okay means we're not doing okay. You guys are not just individuals that both happen to attend church here. You guys are members of a body. Do you know how interconnected a body is? If you don't know how interconnected a body is, stub your pinky toe and feel your whole body respond to it. You can't ignore it. Something's going on down there and it is demanding my attention right now and my language. And so here's, the, here's, here's what Paul's saying. You can't separate that issue from what's going on in here and what's going on here, this interconnectedness, this unity, this, this brotherhood, this sisterhood matters for the church. Unity is a big deal. Fred Craddock, famous preacher, some have called the best preacher in uh, the last hundred years of America that you've never heard of. Listen to what he says about this issue, and I find it fascinating. He says, notice that Paul does not regard matters such as this as private, to be settled outside the church lest anyone be disturbed or offended. No, in Paul's view, this is precisely the nature and function of the church as a body in partnership. Paul wants to address it publicly, in front of everybody. Like, like okay, go, go with me here for a minute. Use your redeemed imagination. Go to the church at Philippi in the first century. Epaphroditus has traveled back across the Mediterranean with this letter from Paul, which the way that this would have been done is they would have been gathering on the Sabbath day and Epaphroditus would have come back with this letter from Paul and guess what they would have done? They would have read the letter out loud in front of the entire, this, this Philippians was Paul's sermon, okay? So you're welcome for not being as long as, actually I might be longer than Philippians, but you're welcome, I think, for not being as sporadic as Paul. But here, here's, the, here's what just happened. Epaphroditus gets back and reads this letter as the sermon that Sunday when they are all gathered as the body. How do you think these two women felt when it got to this part of the sermon? How jarring would this have been? How shocking would this have been? Would this have been what everybody remembered from the sermon, like that Sunday? Like everybody's going home like, man, I loved all that citizenship in heaven stuff at the end of chapter three, but man, did you hear what you said to those two ladies? Like, that's what they're talking about at brunch on the way home, okay? That's what they're going, like, man, that's a, that, like, literally imagine this, and I, 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 was, I was prayerful about this. I, I literally thought about doing a real issue right now, but I'm not gonna do that. But can you imagine if I said to two of our elders in the room, hey, Randy and Joe, y'all gotta figure your stuff out. Y'all got issues, and it's dividing everybody, and this is not okay. Randy, Joe, I'm talking to you two. Seriously, y'all have an issue that y'all need to, no, I'm kidding. But I'm going like, can you, like, everybody's like, oh, wait, you're not, don't call them out publicly. Don't, you can't, they need to go handle this in private. Because, and Paul's going, no, 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 no. I'm calling it out in front of everybody. It's that important. The problem was so intense and divisive, which someone pronounced this week divisive. Have y'all ever heard that before? I thought that, no, no, Kelly, don't agree with that. That's not, we've got an issue that we need to work out, okay? Um, so divisive, it was driving such a wedge in the community. Did you, see, did you catch what Paul does? He enlists a third party advocate, an intermediary. He says, I ask you also, my true companion, no one knows who he's talking to. It could have been Timothy, could have been Luke, no one knows. He says, I enlist you also, my true companion. Help these women. Someone, like, they need help. Randy and Joe, y'all got issues. 
uh, Daryl, you gotta help them. Mary, you gotta help them. Like, this is an issue and they need to go figure this out together. Whatever the cause, it was significant enough that the women could not solve the issue themselves and Paul enlists a third party. What we should be feeling with all of this is the weight of these three verses. This is a big deal. This is not something that, that was um, uh, lighthearted for Paul. This sank deep. This, this, was, this made it into scripture. These women have been talked about for millennia because of their issue. This, this, is, this is like globally famous now, whatever fight these women were having, having it is a big deal. So how does Paul want to lead them to resolution and to unity for their own sake but also for the sake of the church? What's, what's the path to unity? And here's what I want you to be thinking about. Who's someone in your life that you have discord with? Think about someone who, and I'm not talking about like unity in the global sense, like the church's unity, the global church's unity. That's important, but I promise you global unity in the church will not happen unless particular unity happens in the local body, okay? So we, we can talk about why, why, why does the church have so many splits and denominations and what's the problem with the church, but let's talk about, the, let's talk about you, the church. What, if we're gonna find unity, here's, this needs to be applied to your life and my life. So I want you to be thinking about, okay, there's discord in my marriage, there's discord in my relationships, there's discord with my parents, there's discord with my friends. How would Paul address my discord with my, with my people? What's the path to unity? Now, it may seem naive at first, the way that Paul handles it. We'll talk about that. But look again at how he leads them. Look at what he says in verse 2. He says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Okay, the first thing to note is that Paul addresses both women. He uses the term, I plead with, twice one before each woman's name. I'm begging with you, I'm pleading with you, I'm urging you, I'm imploring you. This intense language that Paul addresses at both women, he doesn't use it for one and not the other. He says it to both women is a big clue for us to see how Paul is leading them to unity. Paul addresses both women, meaning Paul believes both women had issues. Both people on each side of the discord had something that needed to be addressed. Whatever the relational breakdown was, whatever the lack of unity was, whatever the discord was, was, both parties had something to own in the breakdown. Now, need to have a caveat here with an asterisk, please hear me, he's not, talk, he's not speaking that principle into an abusive relationship, okay? If that's true of you, he's not talking about that. This is not what that sermon is about, but we do need to address that. We need to put that out there and say that. But what he's talking about is in the daily relationships, the daily grind, the daily discord, the daily fighting, the like wear and tear that happens when you are in relationship with anybody, disunity can happen. And so here's what Paul is challenging you. Do you believe that in your relational discord that someone would need to plead with you to see that you have issues on the table, real issues, that the issue will not get solved until you address your side of it. That whatever you think the other side has issues with, we just corporately confessed it, we rehearse the other side's problems in our minds. That's what that we said that in our corporate confession. We're, we have PhDs in the other side's issues. But here's, here's, what, here's what Paul just said, that's not where I'm starting. I'm starting with you in the relational discord. Do you believe that the strife and the discord in your life 
that both parties need to be addressed and pleaded with in order to find unity, not just one of them. Do you believe that? Minor or major discord in your life, do you believe that? And what does he plead with them to do? He says, I plead with you, each of you. I'm not leaving one out. Both of you have issues. Be of the same mind in the Lord. Other translations say, agree in the Lord. And I think when we first read that, especially if you've grown up in the church or in like a, a cultural Christian, you know, like a, a, a hallmarky Christianity, to agree in the Lord sounds like spiritual fluff. It sounds like spiritual nothingness. It's, it sounds like maybe even dismissive to you. Agree in the Lord. Like what, what, I don't even know what that means. You know, so what, is he just, is he trying to get us to pretend like we don't have an issue? And is he, is he trying to get us to like, uh, to um, pretend like everything's okay? Just agree in the Lord. I assure you that's not what Paul is doing. Paul is going way, 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 way beneath their issue. And he's trying to help them find a way forward into true unity and true peace, but he starts at the bottom. Please understand, agreeing in the Lord here, being of the same mind in the Lord here, is not agreeing about whatever they're fighting about. It's not what he's doing. Agreeing in the Lord does not mean agreeing on the issue that they're fighting about. He's not saying, find some common ground, find some common denominator, work out a compromise, get on the same page about your issue, bring all of your evidence to the table, list out why your side makes the most sense, and then try to ration and reason with the other person until you guys can come to an agreement about the thing that you're fighting about. That would be Paul leading them to a courtroom. But that's not what Paul's doing. Courtrooms have evidence. Courtrooms have witnesses. Courtrooms have verdicts. And he's not saying, hey, you know, I'm not really in Philippi right now, so I don't really have all the data and the details, and I'm not really educated about what you guys are fighting about, but just agree on it. Just get on the same page about that issue that y'all are fighting about. He's not saying that. He's taking them to a deeper place. He's saying there's something deeper that unites you, something that is sturdier than the thing that you're disagreeing about on the surface. If you can get to that place and be reminded of that unity at the bottom, then you will find a unity to hold you at the bottom and to keep you unified, even if you never see eye to eye on the issue that you're fighting about. Paul's saying you need to use cosmic truths at the bottom and apply them to mundane circumstances. And you need to see them in those categories. You need to agree on the cosmic things and then understand that the thing you're fighting about is mundane and you're making it a bigger deal than it needs to be. You're letting the disunity of your fight about whatever you're fighting about become an ultimate thing. And I'm trying to take you to the real ultimate thing, which is the Lord, and you do agree there. And you agree in the Lord. Fight for your unity there because it's real and it can hold you and it's sturdy enough to carry you into whatever discord you may be in about this week. He's putting their everyday situation in the context of the deepest truths. Go to the deepest place in your relationship. Remember your agreement there. And here's what he's not doing. He's not giving them a four steps to reconciliation process. He doesn't say, here's step one, here's step two, here's step three, here's step four, and, and you know, move through the steps and you'll find some relational healing that's never where Christianity starts. That's never where Paul starts in disunity. That's never the way to truly deal with discord and disunity. He's saying, sisters, sisters in the Lord, remember where you're from. You're citizens in heaven, both of you. We just talked about that at the end of chapter three. 
Remember where you're going. Remember the glory that awaits you. Remember the thing that is most true about you. Camp there, focus on it, remember it, dwell on it, talk about it, share in the joy of it. And let that place be what unites you. Agree in the Lord and let your mind be filled with that first. And then, can you imagine agreeing with someone on the deepest part about you and actually believing that it is the deepest truth about you and then disagreeing about some petty issue? It will become petty in light of the deepest place. It will become, it will lose its power. How how could there be any divisiveness in the presence of those deeper ultimate truths? It's only possible to be that upset with each other on a surface issue that you have made a root issue. It's not a root issue. The root is the Lord. The root is your relationship in the Lord. And Paul's saying, go there. I'm taking you to the roots and camp there. Focus on it. Water it. Nourish it. Talk about it. And then talk about your issue if you want to. But you will probably not even want to talk about it anymore. You will probably not even feel the need to fight about it anymore. But if you don't start with the deepest things... You will always fight about surface issues. You will be upset with each other. It will be proof that you have forgotten the deepest things. Because right now you're letting your secondary disagreement drive you apart and create disunity. What is most true about you women, he's saying, is you are united in the most important thing. In the most primary of ways. Let that unity be the thing that you focus on come back to, agree on, remember that you agree on those things, remember you're on the same team, remember you're citizens of the same kingdom, and that will keep you together. I plead with you women, agree in the Lord. Sounds good, right? Doesn't that handle all of your relational discord? Don't you, won't you just walk out of here and get, not get in a fight all day with whoever you're in a fight with? There's just one little problem with that. <laughs> one, one wall to hit, one resistance to hit. If these women, or we, are going to agree in the Lord, be of the same mind in the Lord, these women and us will both have to be willing to lose the fight. They will both have to be willing to come to the table and say a version of this. Sister, I have let my disagreement with you turn into bitterness and hate, and I have felt very justified in doing that. I have let the thing we disagree about drive a wedge between us and I have loved holding on to being right about the issue instead of loved holding on to being united in the Lord with you. I have loved the issue more than I have loved you. So what's so hard about saying that sentence? What's so hard about losing a fight? Why are we so committed to being right and never being wrong? What's at stake? What's, what's being threatened? Why, why, why would something like that, agreeing in the Lord and losing the fight on the surface, losing the fight about a, whatever we're disagreeing about, why is that such a threat? Why is that an issue for us? It's because being right makes me feel secure. I can know that if I'm right, I can at least, in the little courtroom of my heart where I am judge and jury, I can feel vindicated there. And as long as I'm vindicated, then my shell of an identity, my sandcastle kingdom, feels like it cannot be pierced or penetrated. As long as I am right, I feel safe and secure. If I'm right about something, then even if the whole world or all my relationships turn against me, I can still feel safe and secure because of my rightness. Here's here's what it is. Being right makes you feel protected. 
And you may not realize that while it's happening, but to give that up, here's the opposite side of that. Because being right makes you feel protected and makes me feel protected, being wrong is terrifying. If I've decided that being right makes me feel protected, being wrong makes me feel exposed and weak and vulnerable. I can't be wrong about this because everything can come crashing down. I'll get wounded if I'm wrong. I'll get damaged if I'm wrong. I'll get hurt. I'll get stabbed. I'll get betrayed. I'll, I'll, I'll be left out to dry if I'm wrong. Being wrong about something makes me feel unsafe. So I don't want to be wrong about, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I don't want to be on the wrong side of an argument. I don't want to be wrong about anything from how a situation globally should be handled. I don't want to be wrong about the weather forecast. I've got to be right about that. And if I hear you saying something that my weather app didn't tell me, then you need to be corrected. Because I'm right about this. And being right about this makes me feel safe and secure. Do you know you're wrong about that? I know, I know, I know you just spoke about that, but I, just, I, need, to, I need you to know that that's, that's actually not true. Because it threatens my sense of security. So I have to be right about everything because being wrong about anything could put a chink in the armor. The thing that I have built up that makes me feel protected and secure is being right about everything. And so if I'm gonna be wrong about something, you're now making me feel like I don't have any protection, I don't have any defenses, and so I will fight to the death on how you said that thing last time we were fighting about that thing. No, 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 that's, that's actually not what you said. Don't you remember? Let's go back to that place when, when we were just arguing about that thing. That's actually not what you said. And, 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 and let the record show, please. Can the court transcriber please pull that back up for us because we need to, remember you said that? Look at your life. Listen to your interactions this week and how often you feel the need to correct other folks when they are, in your opinion, wrong about something. And listen to and take note of in your own heart how intensely defensive you get when someone thinks that you're wrong about something. Just listen for it. Because it's everywhere in your life. You know how I know that? Because it's everywhere in my life. The fight to be right and the war to never be wrong. It's everywhere. But Paul's saying here to get to unity, to get to the beautiful community, true, strong, sturdy, beautiful community, in order to agree in the Lord, like he's saying, I have to be willing to give up my rightness and be not afraid of my wrongness. I have to be willing to lose the fight. And so here's the profound wisdom of Paul. Here's, what, here's how this whole thing started. Both parties have to do that. He's talking to both women. He didn't, he, he's not defending either one of their discord. He's saying, both of you are doing this. Both of you are afraid of losing this fight. He's not pushing the issue under the rug. He's more like doing heart surgery on the self of each person. This task of finding unity, true community, is not for the faint of heart. It is no small task to get to unity. It may sound like on first read, women, agree in the Lord. It is not for the faint of heart. It is not light work. It is not soft selling anything. It's death of self. Because something's got to happen in you and to you that would give you the courage and the security and the humility to do this. 
give up your rightness and not be afraid of your wrongness. You have to be willing to lose the fight. And here's where it gets excruciating. You have to be willing to lose the fight even when you know you're right. But you knowing your rightness is actually what's causing you to be so wrong. You actually have to be, this, this, I know this sounds insane, in your rightness, you have to be willing to be treated like you're wrong and not defend an ounce of it. That, that sounds awful, does it not? So what in the world would give you the security and the humility to not be afraid of being wrong and to give up your commitment to being right? Look with me again at verse three. Will you throw this up there, Allie? He says, yes, and I ask you, my true companion, thank you, Mark Cohn, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my coworkers, whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are in the book of life. What in the world is Paul talking about there? And what does names being written in the book of life have anything to do with helping this issue and these women get to unity? Kings have registers. Kings take inventory of the people in their kingdom. And the register the Lord keeps of his kingdom is of the names of the people that belong to him, the names of the people that belong to the kingdom of light. And this biblical idea of names being written in a book is all over scripture, literally dozens and dozens and dozens of times, this idea, this fact, biblical reality. These are the names of the chosen These are the names of the redeemed. This is the private ledger of the king and the children of his kingdom are written in his book. Do you know what it means to be written down in someone's book? Do you know what it means to have a sacred place where names are written down and to have names on that list, to have your name on that list? So I've told you a couple weeks ago I went to Chicago to do my wife's granddad's funeral who was the definition of a saint. He was not perfect, but he was a saint. And he passed, and I had the privilege and the honor of doing his eulogy and doing his funeral, and it was, it was a profound gift to me. But um, we went through some of his stuff while we were up in Chicago, um, you know, old, old guy stuff, which was awesome. Uh, I got some of his old guy polos and old guy jackets and great. You'll be seeing the retro me here soon. But um, we found a box of his Bibles. Like, he was 87. I mean, Bibles from the, like, 50s that he's had. Um, And every one of his Bibles was worn out. He would just, like, wear one out and then get a new one, and then just, like, wear it out and get a new one. And But here's what was maybe more amazing. Every Bible for decades, I mean, decades, had notes, cards, dates, prayers, tragedies, triumphs, losses, celebrations, names of every one of his daughters, names of every one of his grandkids, names of every one of his great-grandkids and the things he was praying for for them. Sermon notes from sermons that he would listen to on a podcast that he didn't really know how to use, but like sermon notes from me, like a month before he died with dementia, he was still trying to listen to sermons like write my name down and write the things down that I was teaching him the things he was praying for all those people, the things that he, was, that he cherished about those people, it was all written down, it was all kept, it was all treasured. 
Guess what names I didn't see in there? Yours. Do you know why? Because he didn't love you. He didn't know you. He didn't cherish you. He didn't treasure you. He didn't pray for you. He didn't always have you on his mind. He had me and my wife and my kids and his kids and old friends and people that he had suffered with. He was still like writing them down for decades, writing them, writing them, writing them. Because you write down those that you treasure. The king has his book. And if you belong to Jesus, your name has been written down in the king's ledger. It cannot be erased and it has never been regretted. It's there because it's treasured. And you may think that's abstract or imaginary. You may think that's the opioid of the masses, that the religion that people just have to conjure up to make themselves feel a certain way. But in the New Testament, let me tell you the way that the Bible, but especially the New Testament, presents that idea that your name's been written in the king's book. In the book of Hebrews, the Hebrews were facing massive persecution. We don't even know what town they were in, but Hebrews all across converted Hebrews into Christianity. They were facing persecution everywhere from their Jewish friends and neighbors. So the book of Hebrews, all over the book of Hebrews who were suffering and being persecuted, and then all over the book of Revelation, which was written to seven churches who were all being persecuted. In the book of Hebrews and the book of Revelation, this fact, this reality, the promise of having your name written down in the book of life is what the writer of those books gives to the persecuted Christians and says, I know you're facing death. I know you're facing hate. I know you're facing discord. I know you're facing persecution. I know you're facing poverty. Let me tell you about where your name is written. Like this was not abstract. This was not opioid for the masses of the early church. This was the bedrock for people who were facing unspeakable things that you and I will never face. This was not abstract for the first century church. This was not theoretical for them. This gave them power to face something that they could not face otherwise because here's what it says to you. Here's what having your name written in the book says to you. No matter what you're facing, no matter what sin you've committed that you bring into the equation of your life, no matter what heartache awaits you or what heartache you are currently in, Jesus cannot lose you. Because you're written in his book. He's always thinking of you when he, and when he, when he, when he ponders you, he treasures you because you're written in his book. He's written your name down. So if you're in his book, let me ask you this question. If you belong to Jesus, how did your name get in his book? How did you go from being forgotten to cherished? How did, how did you move from oblivion to being treasured? Well, I promise you it wasn't from being right. It wasn't from winning every fight. It wasn't from holding on to what you had to hold on to in your rightness. You got put in the book because Jesus lost the ultimate fight for you. Jesus gave up all of his defenses. Jesus lost all of his security so that you would never have to. Jesus laid himself bare even though he was right. Jesus let himself be treated as if he was wrong. He did the very thing that we are terrified of doing. He was perfectly righteous. He did nothing wrong. He was right about everything. And yet he got treated like he did everything wrong. 
He knew he was right, and yet he took the blame as if he was wrong. And now the fight, the war between you and the Lord is over because he took the fall for you. The ultimate fight has been won, and it has been won because Jesus lost it in our place, which means, please hear this, I'm the most secure I've ever been. The ultimate fight was lost by Jesus, so it will never be lost by me. Jesus cannot lose me. I'm in his book, and I got there by his blood, so I don't have to be afraid of losing a fight. Winning or losing a fight doesn't threaten me. It also doesn't gain me anything real to win it. It also doesn't threaten anything real to lose it. Winning or losing a fight cannot threaten my security now because winning or losing a fight is not a real threat at all. If Jesus has me in his book, what am I afraid of losing some fight with you? What am I going to lose that matters? If my name has been cherished by the king, if it cannot be erased and it has never been regretted, then what am I desperately trying to cling to about being right Or what can I not afford to pay about being wrong with you? Whatever it is, it's not real. It may feel real. I'm not minimizing the intensity of the fights that you're in. I'm just trying to tell you that there actually is nothing real at stake in those fights. Your name is in the book, so you can lose your fight. And then Jesus not only becomes our liberator, he becomes our model. This is what it begins to look like. I'm willing to pay the cost of you thinking I'm wrong. I'll even pay the cost for things that I didn't even do wrong, but I'll pay the cost for that because that's what Jesus did. Jesus paid the cost for things that he didn't do, but he bore the weight of them. He lost the fight so that we would be secure, so that our names would be in the book. And we just sang it out loud. Our name in the book means that we are treasured and prized. We're treasured and prized, we're treasured and prized, the body of Christ, and for her he died. So if your name's in the book, you can lose your fight. You're that secure now. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. Losing fights feels way too insecure, feels threatening, it feels, um, feels like too much is at stake. Would you mark us as people, not just that um, are willing to lose the fight, but we do so because we know how secure we are at the bottom. Transform us, we pray, Jesus, by your word and your spirit this morning. In your name, amen.